5: Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio.
6: Hi, this is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. It's April, which is Jazz Appreciation Month, so we are running some selections from the QLS archives from artists who make some jazz music. This is a 2021 conversation with none other than Pat Matheny. He is the only artist to win Grammys in 10 different categories, and he's got 20 of them. This interview explores Pat's many facets of music and his incredible career accomplishments from one of the greatest guitarists in all of music, let alone jazz. Please enjoy this QLS classic.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove. We have the entire team Supreme with us right now. There is Chief Steve what's up, Hi man? everybody, hello How you doing? Hi Pat Metheny Oh my god I know, <laughs> I know. this is awesome for Steve It's awesome for all of us uh, Unpaid Bill, what's up bro?
1: Man, I feel the same way Pat Metheny I don't know what to do right now I'm gonna try to keep it cool <laughs> Alright <laughs> <laughs> Skip the
5: formalities Fontigolo, right. right? how are you? What up?
7: What up? I'm good man Down 38 We're waiting in You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, yeah. Do you weigh in yeah. every day? Hell no, nah, that's chaos. I only weigh in once a month. I weigh oh uh, sorry, once a week. I weigh in every Monday. So right. every Monday I weigh in, and then immediately after I weigh in, that's when I have, you know, whatever I, I want to eat, just after to weigh in, you know what I mean? So, Word, okay. Because that give me the rest of the week to work it off, you know what I mean? Voice accountability, I
5: feel yeah. you. Integrity and accountability. I'm right there with you. Laia, how, how are you?
0: I'm good, and I'm negative, COVID negative, as of yesterday. I just want to- know. Word up. Yeah. What you, hey, what you had, like a bug or something? Huh?
7: Well, you no. were—you had like a bug or
5: something. No, I'm trying
0: to or... get out of town, you know. But I oh, gotcha. good that I know what I am right now. You know what I mean. I, just, just I had a pride. I had a
5: or major to... bug last week. I, I thought it was I thought it was a wrap, y'all. <laughs> it's going, going around, man. Yeah. I had the flu, but it was it was major. Anyway. Oh. Hey, um, hey guys, Pat Metheny's here.
8: Yo. Oh, I <laughs> Pat Metheny. <laughs> anyway, so
5: <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, um, our guest today, his reputation speaks for itself. First of all, we have to start with the mind-blowing factoid that our guest today is the only musician uh, to win Grammys in 10 categories. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Like, it, it's, you, we got to make a collaborative record so you can get a hip-hop one. You probably have one already. <laughs> okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, not to mention, uh, this being his almost fifth decade in the, the professional recording business, uh, his grand total was 20. He's absolutely one of the most adventurous um, dependable expansive creatives and guitarist in music even without a guitar his the way that his his brain thinks he's a self-reclaimed professional improviser which is is very uh impressive to me because to deal with the pressure of having to live up to the moment of your expectations and audience expectations that's a lot for me to. To weigh in, so I definitely want to get on that. That's you know, it, it, so much I can say, but you know, let's just get to it, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome the great Pat Metheny. Yes, to hey. Questlove. Yeah. Thanks, thank man. You. What what
9: a treat for me to be here, and thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate
5: it. Well, we we thank you for coming. Uh, we we're all, we're also complimenting you on your on your um your your awesome quaff uh, that you've made yes. Come from you then luxurious means a lot, man. feathered, yeah, feathered and still. <laughs> I just going. need one of them picks like you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you gotta say. That's all you gotta say. <laughs> you know, it's it's weird because um I know oftentimes sort of outsiders tend to pigeonhole musicians in a particular category. And oftentimes more than not, it's not necessarily sort of an apt description. I mean, you know, to call you a jazz musician, I think is is rather limiting because you know you you've done so much more. I always wanted to know, but the thing is I'm very familiar with your catalog, but not familiar with your story or or your journey. What would you necessarily call your your brand of music? because you you've literally done everything but the kitchen sink when it comes hmm. to emulating sounds or or producing sounds from your studio into the record stores into our ears. What what would you call your your genre of music?
9: Yeah, that's a question that comes up a lot. Um I'm sure for you too for 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 most musicians, it, you know, it's 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 often an issue. I mean, mm. you know, for for me, I wish we had a better name for for stuff, you know, or or that we didn't have to have names. To me, when whenever we start going down the thing of, you know, and and yeah, you're right, I get it all the time. Like, you know, what is, what is this? Mm-hmm. It, it's usually, for me, it's usually a political discussion or a cultural discussion or a dress code discussion more than a music discussion. Right. And, you know, I, I feel like... There are a couple musicians in that generation that sort of is just above me, that sort of were, of course, heroes for me, but also kind of defined a new way of being as a musician. And, and I'll just throw out some names. I mean, Herbie is one. Chick Korea would be an incredible example of this. Keith Jarrett, Gary Burton. And by that, I mean, it's a bunch of musicians who... Could play written music with the New York Philharmonic one night and probably not get fired and actually be invited back with you know kudos all around right. and could play the next night with uh, you know James Brown or something you know what I mean right or 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 could play with uh, you know a folk singer I mean kind of like a little bit what you guys have to do. You know, on the show uh, too. Um, but I mean, for me, when I think about that generation of musicians, and there were a few significant people before them, Train, Charlie Parker, Art Tatum all come to mind. It's people who really advanced what was possible on their instruments beyond any description uh, that you might want to. Imp- impose on it on a political level or a cultural level, just strictly in terms of what can you do as a human being with an instrument in your hand. You know, that to me is clearly the model. And, um, you know, I mean, the J word, I don't know anybody that likes that really. And, um, you know, then there's all these other ones. I mean, man, there was the the Fusion. the, the F word came along yeah. about <laughs> about ten years into my thing, and I was right. like, where did that one come from? I mean, you know, when when I first you know started making records and stuff, that was the era of hyphens. You know, there was jazz rock, rock yeah. jazz folk, folk. This mm-hmm. you know did it, you know, and in a way, that was a little bit descriptive of something, uh-huh. but. I mean man by the time I came along I was actually a reactionary to you know distortion and backbeats and stuff. I mean I was already kind of like you know yeah. you know kind of looking for something past the Mahavishnu thing as much as I love that mm-hmm. that was really more closely connected to like Tony Williams or something like that. And, um, you know, so it, you know, it's, it's hard to, 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 to come up with a name. So here's what happens. I mean, in a direct answer to your question, I'm sitting next to a person on a plane who says, well, what kind of music do you play? And I kind of look at them and I go, well, you know, this person seems like if I say jazz, they're going to know what I'm talking about or they're not, <laughs> mm-hmm. or, you know, it's like, it's a case by case thing, but man, I mean, I kind of would do anything to have to, to avoid having to do that. But of course, you know, we do live in a world, especially now where, you know, this whole issue of stratification of our entire personal lifestyles or something that everybody's curating their entire existence in very specific ways.
7: We're all at the mercy of the algorithm.
9: Yeah, my thing of trying to open it up even further is actually in direct opposition to the culture of the
5: moment. I see. Yeah, I was going to say, well, okay, I do want to start to how you came to music. But since you already went there, I have to know... Okay, because you were born in a certain time period and knowing that you know albums like In a Silent Way or Bitches Brew, even on the corner um, or I mean I mean we can even talk about like the the, the 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 experimental phase of of Coltrane during his last period, you're 12, 13, 14, 15 at the time, which I know Based on other musicians I know of, that that's a very that's an extremely uh, impressionable yeah, former, and influential yeah. time in a musician's life where they take everything in and don't throw it away. Whereas I would guess if you were older, if you were in your twenties during that time period, you might have an eyebrow raised with what the fuck is Miles Davis doing right now? But can you describe what it was to grow up? at least with your young ears, assuming that you're, you're, your palate was changing by 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Could you describe the, what, what it was like to witness kind of first generation, those experimental uh, movements in jazz at such a young age? Like, how did you take to it? Was there someone to slap your hand like, that's not music? Or <laughs> Had they done that, it
9: would have made me like it even more which was kind of the kind of where I was at,
5: (laughs) but um,
9: no, it's funny. It's it's really uh, interesting that, that you're mentioning that it uh, uh, kind of coincidentally in the past month or so, uh, a really fantastic uh, writer in the Kansas city area where I am from wrote a book kind of, I mean, it's ostensibly about me from 1964 to 1972 the years that i you know kind of was on the kansas city scene right and um man she brought back all kinds of stuff and there's all these people talking about that era and man it just took me right back there cuz generally speaking i don't look back too much i'm if you come to my house you were talking about grammys and you wouldn't see one thing man door I stops I, every <laughs> how day many, how many have broken Every day I start at zero. You know, I don't want to see anything about how the gig was last night. I want to like whatever. But today it's new. And so I don't like to have anything around. I don't like to think too much about kind of, you know, whatever from in the past. But this book just took me right back to exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I'm I'm talking about Kansas City, but in fact, I grew up in a rural town about 20, 30 miles away from Kansas City, where, I mean, man, no one had any idea what I was interested in at all, Mm -hmm. and nor did I really have any frame of reference for it. So, I mean, I realize now my, my way of quantifying things was, oh, it's on a record, So the record could be The Beach Boys, it could be Ornette Coleman, it could be John Philip Sousa, it could be Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton. All I knew is I could take it down in the basement and play it on my parents' recently retired record player. Mm -hmm. And actually, I only had a very few records. And one of the records that really made an impact on me was a record my brother brought home, Four and More. That was it. Miles, and Miles' record. It was, okay. Ma- you know, the it was the quintet when George Coleman was was in it. Okay. And uh, it's sort of all the up tempo stuff from the My Funny Valentine live concert. And I mean, you know, I do hear the rap often of people saying, "Well, you know, you got to develop a taste for that kind of music," and this, that, and the other thing. Man, for me, it was like somebody switched on the lights, and it was mostly Tony to tell you the truth. It was the to me the Tony sound dreams? of that. Yeah, the sound of the ride cymbal was, to me, like, that was what was about to happen in the world. And it was,
5: actually. And um, Yeah, Tony had a really, like, heavy... It it was almost like... I I would describe it as his his approach to uh, his ride cymbal was violent but very beautiful. Just the the amount of tone that... The fact that he can get so much tone out of one cymbal hitting in various ways, like... Yeah, that that always. And also he,
9: you know, it was just this constantly changing like set of 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 grooves. It wasn't it was, you know, the of course, I had no reference of any of that either, nor did I understand that they were playing on a blues or they were playing on the stand, the form of. There is no greater love. All I knew is what it sounded like and mostly what it felt like to me. And at the same time, you know, I picked up a guitar a year or two before that, because like me and a billion other people in the world, I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So the, the guitar itself was this sort of iconic thing as much as it was an instrument. And in reference to my general nature the one thing my parents didn't want me to ever do was play electric guitar. So, I mean, you know, there you go. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's kind of, I, I joke around. Like sort of an electric like, guitar yeah.
5: was a, the, like a four-letter word similar to like Dylan grabbing electric guitar in 65? Like, Oh, way more than that. I mean, you know, way more than that. I mean, it was like, it, I, I, you know,
9: it was more like, mom and dad, I think I'm going to join the devil worshiping cult down the
5: street here. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't a matter of like, we just want a less, a, a, a not noisy instrument in the house. It was more like what that guitar represented. Exactly.
9: Yeah. And, and, like, they were musicians though, right? Well, They were kind of musicians. I mean, actually, they were very musical. My dad especially was a really good trumpet player. And I have a very important figure in my life. is my older brother, Mike, five years older than me. Incredible trumpet player at a very young age. And I started playing trumpet, too, when I was eight. Um, And hence the Miles Davis record. You know, trumpet was a thing kind of in our family. Like, you know, not, not any particular kind of trumpet, just trumpet. And, you know, we would go see Doc Severinsen, who was, you know, come out the Midwest and do concerts, or Clark Terry, because it, more about the trumpet part of it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so, yeah, guitar was this other thing. And um, once again, they were right. I mean, man, what happened in the few years after 1964, 65, 66, with people with guitars strapped around their necks was their worst fear come... To, to life by ten thousand percent, you know. The, what's weird in my case, though, is that that Miles moment put me on this whole other direction. And this is more in in response to your question. Right. Um, I didn't think about like, oh, Ornette is really some wacky, far out thing that people were getting into fights and in, in front of the bandstand about. And West right. Montgomery, oh, he's commercial because he's playing "Going Out of My Head," and you know, I just had no, first of all, no interest in that in that aspect of it. I was just like, man, what are they playing, and how are they playing that, and what do I need to know in order to understand this? Like, what is this?
5: And did you, you know, did you understand at an early age that maybe jazz was uh, sort of like a An intellectual's music or an intellectual game. Like, did you choose jazz because, like, all of your other friends are trying to learn "Smoke on the Water" riff, and you're like, "Well, I'm learning West Montgomery." Like, um, I mean, you know,
9: again, I have to say, where I would, where I grew up, man, I mean. Yeah, I was I was completely non-aligned with any person my own age. You know, I okay. just had nothing to do with anybody, nor was I particularly interested what anybody thought about anything, because
5: I was <laughs> really involved. You really a loner, a rebel? Well,
9: I think most people that are going to deal with this language at some point along the way, they had to spend four or five years, 12 hours a day alone. It's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I want to give a speech in, you know, Greek to a bunch of nuclear physicists. You know, first of all, right. I have to learn Greek and then I got to learn about nuclear physics. You know, I mean, it's it's not a, a <laughs> something that's going to happen overnight. You know, the benefit for me, though, was the Kansas City thing where I just happened to kind of chronologically come along at a time where at a very young age I was able to start working with people who were a lot better than me. And I mean, I don't know about you, but that's the way you learn is to be in, I always tell people, try to be the worst person in every band you're in, or at least be around musicians who you're going to learn some stuff from, because that's how it works, you know?
5: You got to be the least knowledgeable person in your circle.
0: NPR has a new collection of podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths collection You'll hear stories of joy and resilience, empowerment in creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Megan the Stallion to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Michelle Obama to the women behind the Montgomery bus boycott, there's no limit to the range of NPR. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and Black as the country they reflect. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. So by the time you got in your first band, what was your knowledge and where were you?
9: Well, I mean, you know, I did have my year or so of, you know, kind of messing around with, you know, kind of, I guess we could say rock bands or whatever. And um, but, you know, I immediately took it very seriously to the point of concern, (laughs) I would say, of everybody, you know, I mean. The other analogy, a joke I always make, and it's, I think, a valid one, you know, I've got three kids and, and, you know, as much as there had been resistance to me playing the guitar, the thought of me spending 12 or 13 hours a day down in the basement, you know, learning who knew what was a little bit like for right now, if one of my kids said to me, Dad, I'm going to become a professional video game player, you know, I would say like, no, you're not. You can't do that. That's, you know that's like, really yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, I mean exactly. So, but it was like that to them. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, learn, you know, this McCoy Tyner solo on reaching fourth, and I'm gonna really check out Roy Haynes, you know, tonight. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> How many, so you
5: were you were practiced 12 hours a day?
9: Oh, I was really
5: I was really finally into, I finally mean, I someone still that am, lives man, up to I, my expectations. I get up. Every,
9: at, I get up at four o'clock in the morning almost every day now. You know, it's, it's you know to me music is really hard. I know there's people that are really talented and stuff. And I, I really, I, I caution people about their talent because I kind of don't really believe that much in talent. You know, I'm, I'm more about, uh, you know, it's hard. I don't care how talented
1: you are. You gotta, you gotta work on it. Why? Why in the early days were you pushed towards the hollow body? Because it seems like if you were in rock bands, it's a weird choice for rock bands, right? I mean, was it was because of West Montgomery, or was it just because that was the first guitar you had—the Gibson, yeah. the, the one forty, da da.
9: Yeah. Good question. I mean, so with my parents, you know, when I finally like convinced them that I was really, I really wanted to get a guitar. My Christmas present one year was not a guitar. It was permission to buy a guitar with my own money that I earned. <laughs> you got permission. All right, I got That's permission.
7: Something. So it just
9: happened that the you know I earned sixty dollars doing. I That's had a, a little lot back job. then. Yeah. I mean, I had a little job and looked in the Kansas City Star and there was a Gibson guitar for $60. It didn't even say what kind, just Gibson guitar. And it was an ES 140, which is this small hollow body.
5: Mm -hmm. And
9: honestly, I didn't, you know, to me, it was like a Gibson and it was electric and, you know, cool. Um, And um, so I didn't really care with solid body hollow body and that would have been before i heard four and more um so once i heard four and more then i began the thing that we all do of like you know okay who are the other trumpet players who are the other bass player that i need to and then of course guitar i was already holding it in my hand and in fact the the father of a friend of my brother said you know you should check out west montgomery and uh he played me a record and man that was it for me and i was like well i got this hollow body already so i'm like you know in the
1: You're perfect the ballpark, the, ballpark right? the, gu- the guitar yeah. chose you you didn't choose the guitar well yeah one and, of those. <laughs> and then
9: actually funny thing happened not funny it was tragic at the time um my mom is from wisconsin and back in those days you the only way to get to Wisconsin from Kansas City was an airline called Ozark Airlines. And you would stop at like Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, you know, Dubuque. Like you'd stop like six places along the way before really? going to Manitowoc, where she was from. And um, when we got to Manitowoc, I went to get my guitar and it was just pieces shattered. of wood shattered.
6: <laughs> and I'd
9: only oh, no. had it for maybe two months so it was awful and but ozark airlines gave me i think a hundred dollars you know in repayment for it and that's when i got my es 175 which was the guitar that i still play most of the time i've had it all these years
5: i i was going to say to you that i want to thank you because i thought i mean we've done five years of uh five years of shows and, you know, we've had every virtuoso musician that you could think of on the show, and nothing makes them happier than debunking my theory that perfect practice makes perfect. And, you know, this this goes a long time ago. I, I had met um, saxophonist David Murray. Yeah. And I would ask David, like, yo, like, you know, He he mentioned something like, well, you know. I uh, I took a nap at two in the morning, and then I got up at six to practice my scales. I'm like, wait a minute, you you practice your scales at six in the morning? He's like, yeah, every day I wake up like five, six in the morning, do my scales for about four hours. I do breakfast and da 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 da. Then I do another five hours wearing my tonal thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, how many hours a day do you practice? And he was kicking it like eh, seven, eight, nine, ten. He's like, sometimes ten, eleven hours. And I'm like, to this day? He's like, yes, to this day. And then like, his gigging starts you know after that 11 hours and you know i kind of stuck to that sort of that religious and that was like back in 87 88 and like you know you know I was doing like a master class with them or something um but then you know i would ask every musician that i knew like how often do you practice and they'd be like whatever like <laughs> two three at the most it it was making me think that that whole thing was just a myth like the the idea of the the musician Ernie Isley has a similar story about uh, when when Jimi Hendrix used to live with the Isley Brothers um, over in Jersey. How Jimmy would wake up every morning to practice his scales at four thirty five in the morning, and Ernie would just sit in the closet and watch Jimmy for like two to three hours practicing these scales, and then that's basically how you know Ernie, in my opinion, you know, kind of earned that baton from Jimi Hendrix. But yeah, I, I just want to thank you for at least not making me feel foolish. Cause every time I ask about <laughs> practice on the show, every guest is like, Pfft, whatever. So, you know,
9: there, it's an interesting thing because I think every musician has a wildly different path from as we all do as individuals from everybody else. I mean, everybody's kind of got their own right. physical thing and their own whatever. I mean, and, and being a musician, also is so unique to each person. I mean, what this guy wants to do, what that guy, I mean, everybody's got their own path. Um, And, you know, at the same time, I think that, like, I'm sure, you know, we've both known people who were just at very young ages, incredibly good, like they Mm -hmm. could just kind of do it. And man, that's a tough, that's like, a, it's almost one of the worst things I think that can happen to someone. It's a handicap. To be, yeah. To yeah. be like a, a super a prodigy. talented <laughs> person because it throws you off, you know, it gives you, it gives you kind of the wrong idea. And I mean, a lot of people can skate maybe their entire career that way. Um, but, you know, To me, the guys that I, you know, maybe that list of names that I read off, like Gary Burton's a great example of this. Mm -hmm. He, I think, was, in fact, I'm sure he was like this ridiculous prodigy guy, Mm -hmm. but he also took it really seriously. And I don't know that his version of practicing would be what you and I would talk about as practicing. Um, But, you know, I mean, there are people who I think, I mean, Mike Brecker, you know, he could he I remember seeing him near the end of his life and he was like quiet and he was like practicing you know I mean right you know it's like it, it I think it can show up in a lot of different forms I, I will add in in my case I don't ever feel like I'm practicing I always feel like I'm just playing and when oh. I practice I take a tune that maybe I don't know as well as I wish I did mm-hmm. and you know I just start playing it and I try to play it fast. I try to play it slow. I try to play it in all 12 keys. I try to really know what makes that tune that tune. And that's hard. I mean, you know, I can still take tunes that I've been playing all these years and and play them and as I'm playing them, I'm discovering first of all what I can do and what I can't do. And what I work on is what I can't do. It's like okay. I don't do what I can do. I work on what I can't do. So if I start hearing something And I can't really do that. It's like, okay, I need to work on that. And a lot of times I hear people and they're practicing, but they're just playing stuff they can already play. I try to play what I can't play.
6: Is that what the improvising is? Working on stuff that you don't? That's a whole other
9: can of worms there. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Yeah, I was going to say.
9: By by, the way, we're improvising right now and we're using our language. We all have a relationship to English that allows us to just, do our thing without really worrying too much about verbs and nouns and pronouns, you know, or what your tongue is doing while you're talking, you're just doing it.
5: You're just doing and it. We're
9: improvising. It. And I mean, that's essentially, you know, what, what this thing is, you know, of being a musician in this realm is to be able to just talk about whatever you want to talk about and not get hung up with the, the mechanics of it.
5: Let me ask for, okay. So, I think I've shared this story before. George Clinton once famously uh, joked, you know, Prince Prince often had a, a a big reputation for over-practicing, you know. Again, that 10 a.m. I'll find you if you're late. We're going to do <laughs> the same riff five hours in a row until we get it right, that sort of thing. And George Clinton used to tease that Prince is the only cat that he knew that could practice his spontaneity. And you know, I know how big you are on improvisation and sometimes even when I'm rehearsing with my guys, sometimes I want to save that energy for the stage. Like I know that there's a certain type of energy and excitement that happens at our shows in particular that I often worry we might give away in sound check, you know. And I kind of want to like, all right, all right, all right, save it for the show. Save that energy for a show. Don't you, don't go you there tell yet. Us that.
1: Right, that's right. Like when we shoot the shit before the show. Exactly. You don't want to, you to shut up. So we get save to save it
5: for the show. And you know, well, you're you're actually. I'm wondering. Okay, so when I I spoke to uh, when we did Bobby McFerrin on the show, you know, he said that you know that's his greatest thrill, like you know, not to do too much beforehand, but like he considers that I'm practicing on the stage, but because I know you're so big into improvisation and whatnot, um, do you ever worry about over practicing before you even get to present it to whatever show you're doing that night?
9: You know, there are a couple of cliches that are really effective, really useful. And I found it to be really true. And that one about, um, you know, luck or whatever, success is where preparation meets opportunity. To me, mm-hmm. that's like a key one. And the way that applies to this discussion is, you know, knowing kind of as much as I can know about the possibilities of what an, a situation might entail. I mean, that may be the band, the music, the, you know, whatever. There's infinite variations, as much as I can be prepared for those things, um, the more fun I'm going to have. And so for me, the the goal, in fact, is, I mean, spontaneity, improvisation, professional improviser, you know, we're kind of circling around the job description in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that involves for me then is to be really ready. I mean, I'm like, you know, kind of You know, I really strongly enforce that sound checks are. I don't want to hear anybody really try to play anything, and I'm I'm like the save it for the gig champ. Like, do not, (laughs) do not jam, do not do anything. You know, like just you're telling musicians not to jam. Really make sure, and kind of I I have I usually come up with like one section of something that we can play, that we can play it for 20 minutes. Cause it can take a while for this kind of music to settle into the hall. And, you know, I wanna give the sound guy a chance to mm-hmm. do his best too. Um, and there's a way for me of improvising where it's sort of like, I'm gonna just uh, kind of hang in the zone of the fundamentals that it's kind of improvising, but I don't really have to think about it too much. And there's a kind of warming up because the physical thing of playing for me is, I, I could say almost challenging. I mean, I'm not a natural guitar player in a lot of ways. So I really do have to warm up for a couple hours.
8: Mm-hmm. And
9: during that period of time, I'm trying not to play any quote unquote music. Uh, but I, I have kind of developed these things where I can sort of invent they almost like unfold on themselves. Like I'll start in a key and then I'll say, okay, now I'm going to take that and I'm going to move it through, uh, you know, the cycle of fifths backwards or something like that. So I'm not really thinking, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just doing something that's going to get the mechanics working. That's also doing the, whatever those brain connections are that you want to have where you have an idea and you can, get to it within you know sub millisecond uh you know response time and you know the best thing for me too also is if i can go all day without talking and really i don't eat before a gig i really get into like this thing because for me the gig is is the that's church you know that's the destination i know records are a thing you know and there were all those years like okay you got to Go out on the road to promote your record. And I'm like, really? I to me, it's like you make a record, so when you show up in Peoria, somebody might come to the gig because they've heard your name, you know. To right. me, it was always the records were the ad to get people to come to the gig, <laughs> the gig because the gig is it. And that's still the case for me, which kind of fits right now in the world of gigs and t-shirts, you know, because that's really what we are, right? Um, so, um, you know, and I, you know, I did kind of get into making records there, you know, I mean, I, I got better at it, I think, and, and took it a lot more seriously as time went on. But, um, to me, the gig is it, that's it, you know, it's all headed for the gig. So if I can really, you know, do the things that I know will help me get ready for that moment. And then that moment does take on this sort of, significance as this is what it's all been leading to you know i mean from the time i heard four and more you know it's like everything has been leading to this moment and also this may be the last time i ever play and in fact the last time i ever played was auckland new zealand the first week of march uh last year Yeah, you know i didn't know at that time gee that was the last time i'm going to play for a year and a half so i'm kind of glad i play like that because that was it
5: So you know. So, so you've not been on a stage since.
9: I know. Got some gigs coming up, man. I hope. How uh, is this the longest that you went
5: concurrently without being on stage?
9: This is the longest I've been in one place since high school. It's the first what time I've looked, looked like? out a window and seen. You know. Spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, from one point of view. And I have to say, it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed that. And the best part for me, the, the headline, is nobody in my immediate circle died, you know. And yeah, right. so many of people in our community have been hit so hard. I mean, not to mention just the no gig thing. But, I mean, man, I mean, you and I both know right. a bunch of people who are not here right now who should be here because right. of this stuff. So, yeah, right. Yeah, it's been a it's been rough in that respect, but you know, for at this point in life, I've done a lot of gigs, so that's great. And also it's kind of been interesting for me to, to kind of look out the window a bit.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: the first time I, I think I saw
6: your name in credits was on this Joni Mitchell album called Shadows and Light 1980. It's a live album from a tour that you did with Jocko. I believe Pistorius was in that band as well. And yes, and Joni, obviously. Can can you tell us any memories of, of that time period playing with Jocko and Joni and that tour?
9: Well, you know, the I mean, Jocko was like, you know, my one of my closest friends mm-hmm. years before anybody knew who either one of us were. And, um, you know, our, our careers or whatever you want to call it, paralleled each other chronologically in a pretty significant way. In fact, before years before the Joni thing, Jocko played on my first record. He and I both kind of made our recording debuts together without even knowing that's what we were doing. Uh, we thought we were rehearsing with Paul Blay, one of the greatest piano players ever.
5: I was gonna say, how did that happen? You accidentally <laughs> made a record with Jaco Pastores, not knowing it.
9: Well, you know, Paul was a trip. I don't, you know, I don't know how much y'all know about yeah, Paul Yeah, That was my m-
6: my next question was if you could tell our viewers about Paul.
9: Well, Paul changed music a couple times. Is it
6: Bly or Blay?
9: Blay. And Blay. I mean, you
5: know, is there's he related a to Carla Blay? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he was, married, was to a, married to him. That's his wife. Yeah. Her, yeah. Oh, okay. See, yeah. I have a whole relationship yeah. with Carla. Play as. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Hip hop samples, but go ahead.
9: Yeah. Well, Paul was. I mean, you know, I could talk for Paul about Paul for forty-five minutes. So I'll just leave it. Go in. Uh, you it. know, I mean, yeah. if you ever listen to a record called Footloose, which was made in the early '60s. Pete Larocca playing drums, swallow playing bass. I mean that changed everything. There's a solo that Paul plays on a Sonny Rollins record where he called uh, where he plays with uh, Sonny and Coleman Hawkins and they play uh, all the things you are and Paul's solo on that like just revolutionized everything And you can even go back to like 1956 he, check So it. Paul was a heavy cat and also uh, unusual person so you know we we were asked to go to this rehearsal studio we thought which was a recording studio actually and there were mics and stuff but you know we were both pretty green to tell you the truth and so we were playing and paul had not really let us improvise much we would just play the heads over and over again to all these hip Carla blay tunes and some more net tunes and um and then suddenly we were like playing, and I was like, "Wow, this is great!" But the and Jocko sounds fantastic on this record. Paul, that the night before had heard some rock band, and had decided that I should play through a stack of Marshalls, and he'd rented a wah wah pedal, a Morley wah wah pedal. Mm-hmm. What else do you and need? Guitar player would know, <laughs> right. if like a fate worse than death you know (laughs) that even with a good wah-wah pedal that was not really where i was at particularly right then so basically you hear jocko sounding good on that record and then kind of off in the distance you hear this and that's me (laughs) 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 but yeah so that was 1974 and then we made bright size life my record in 1975 um, and we played a lot is that that, that trio with Bob Moses, the Bright Side's Life trio, um, you know, and that's so that's several years before the Joni thing. And in the meantime, so after Bright Side's Life, Jocko became Jocko, because at the time I did Bright Side's Life, I had to like, why? why would you want to use... So and so and so and so. When you've got this, what's that bass player's name that you use? And I was like, "Yeah, Gary, you're probably right. We should do." That. And Moses was like, "You're crazy if you don't use Jocko." You know, so that was the band for Bright size Life. And then Jocko joined Weather Report shortly after that. And honestly, he and I went in very, very different directions in terms of lifestyle. Jocko was the only guy I'd ever known, you know, kind of. Around that time, who was as straight as I was, and you know, the first time I saw him with Joe Zabernall, that was a different dude, and he remained a different dude, and we were always tight, and uh, you know, I had gone different directions, but um, he called me in the middle of the night one night and said, "I'm going to put together a string band for Joni. I want you to be in it." And I'm like, "Okay, cool." And so it was going to be me and Joni and and Jocko and Alex Acuna playing hand percussion, I think. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, so I'm like, wow, this is a different level. Cause at that point I was still like driving around in the van. I put like 150,000 miles or something on a van with my band where we would play, you know, every $200 gig we could play for three years in there. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly it's like Lear Jets and you know, it was a real culture shock, you know, for me. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting experience. The the rest of the band was Mike Brecker uh, and Don Elias. And, um, and then, you know, Joni had just gotten an electric guitar for the first time and had like nine George Benson model
5: electric <laughs>
9: guitars all tuned different. And, um, <laughs> It was it was you know it was um, an interesting experience. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, okay, the best part was hearing Joni at the end when she would do a couple tunes solo. Because honestly, <laughs> to me, she, she, you know, we it, we it did you know we she didn't need that. You know, she was she was Joni. You know, and and to me, her best thing was always sitting there and playing was, the guitar, the piano. Yeah.
5: So you didn't like her forays into the jazz world, you know, like the stuff she did with Mingus.
9: In terms of phrasing, she's she's incredible, man. You know, I mean, to me, there there are you know, again, we're back to this. How like, like, what are we going to talk about in terms of style? You know, I mean, man, you know, there are some singers like there's some. I mean, Dolly Parton, man. I mean, you want to talk about phrasing? or Dionne Warwick, or, you know, I mean, to me, it's like, yeah, and, and Billie Holiday, you know, there's a Karen Carpenter, you know, to me, that I, I think about people who can really make the melody be the melody, you know, and right. I'm not thinking, oh, well, now she's, she's folk, jazz, country, pop, you know, it's just music, you know, and, um, you know, singers in general, I think we all listen to to learn from how to, how to do that that thing you know and Joni is amazing you know she's incredible
7: i want to ask you uh, um about uh just your working relationship with the uh, lyle mays you know who passed you know uh, recently um he was just somebody that um you know you just seem to have just an amazing creative partnership with uh how did you guys meet and, and what were you what's your story with him
9: man it's tough now because it's like god there's okay so there's lyle and there's charlie mike brecker you know, Billy Higgins, I mentioned, Dewey Redmond. I mean, man, these are the guys that, I mean, not only did we live this musical life together and each one is so deep and rich and varied. They were like, I mean, man, Lyle and I grew up together literally. I mean, you know, we knew each other when we were, you know, basically just out of being teenagers and, you know, it's just so far beyond what I can even say, you know? I mean, the good thing is that there's those records and those records say a lot, you know? And um, yeah, it's tough, man. And then I think about like Roy Haynes, who's 94. So that's
0: what I was about to ask you about because I was given the assignment by my father, who's a student of Roy Haynes, to ask you about that relationship. And you already said earlier that you were listening to Roy when you were a young kid. So the fact that you guys did a record together like oh, yeah. can you yeah, talk about it, please. Man, I
9: it's a, I could talk about Roy for the whole time. To me, that's <laughs>
5: yo, know, he's still good. He's still amazing. He's still killing.
9: He's killing. Yeah and Yeah, I mean, it's been now, I think, a couple of years since. I I usually try to go down during his birthday and play at the Blue Note with him. I think the last time I did it, he had turned 93.
0: Mm -hmm.
9: So he must be 95 or something And still playing. Oh, man. You know, to me, the the drum thing is central. And drummers love to hear me say this, but it's the truth. Whoever Mm -hmm. the drummer is, is the leader. It doesn't matter whose name is on the marquee. It's the drummer's band. And um, I have been so lucky to play, starting in Kansas City, with some of the greatest drummers of this period of time. And, you know, to me, the Roy thing, as it sort of unfolded throughout the 50s, I always point to We Three, this a famous record with Roy and Phineas Mm -hmm. Newborn and Paul Chambers. Yeah. To me, that one—you know—the sound of Roy is the sound of modern drumming. I mean, to this day, when I play with Roy, that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's mm. that's oh, yeah. the pinnacle of everything.
0: you just gave more me a
9: reason to listen to this. This
0: is great. Yeah, <laughs> let me let me ask
5: for you, and, and I know this might be blasphemous, being as though you know you've you've done sort of long-term work with with your band or in and out of the Pat Metheny group, but who would be kind of your all-star lineup? Like, if if I were to sign you and say, okay, in 2022, you're going to go out and tour the world, you get to put your all-star lineup together. Who's on drums? Who's on keys? Who's who's uh, on bass? Who's on percussion?
9: You know, I mean, honestly, I, I know that my thing is... Kind of there, there's like these partisan things. Like, oh well, you know, it's really man. It's just the group. You got to check out the groups. So that other stuff, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. that's really the only cool stuff. All there is now. I mean, or you got to check out the trio. You know, I mean, the thing from my standpoint is that it's not divided, and I have to take some responsibility for that because I kind of got maybe too good at sort of like, okay, this is the Pat Matheny group, and this is the Pat Matheny trio, and this is the, and, you know, people didn't do that back then. Um, you know, that was kind of a new thing to have all these different bands and sort of present yourselves in different ways. For me, they're all the Pat Matheny group because they all acted the same way. It was, you know, I'm gonna write 90% of the notes we're gonna play and we're gonna rehearse and we're gonna, you know, it's like, it didn't really matter. If you look, and this is a cop-out answer to your exact question. (laughs) If you look at the list of names of people that I have played with, Mm -hmm. those are my favorite musicians. And, you know, (laughs) but I include in that Kenny Garrett, Josh Redman, you know, Mike Brecker, you know, those guys, Herbie, you know, I've been really lucky to to be able to say, you know, man, I've, you know, I just did a duet tour with Ron Carter, man. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, those guys are my yeah. heroes, man. Mm-hmm. And and everybody I play with, including the new cast, Joe Dyson is my hero right now. You know, he's a new drummer on the scene from New Orleans, man. This guy is everything really? I'm talking about. You know, so, um, you know, it's like to me, to me, it's one. You know, my thing I see it as one thing and. You know, I'm just glad to be a part of all of it, man. I just feel lucky to be
5: in it, you know. Only because you mentioned it, I kind of have to go there. Okay, so I don't even know if you're aware that um, we were we were quasi-label mates. I mean, your period of Geffen, I think, ended right when I started with Geffen, um, which instantly meant, you know, that first year, raiding the closet was just awesome, like, you know. It's like your first binge shopping is 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 hiding in the going in the closet of your record label and taking all the CDs. So that said, you you mentioned uh, zero tolerance for silence. Okay, so from from my point of view, definitely coming from a standpoint of hip hop, which I think our ears are built way different than anyone else. For me, that album. Was, is always my go-to record because of your shrill noises, you know. Like, it's literally just an entire album of textures and, and solo noises that can lead to other ideas. So whereas, you know, of course, uh, you know, I guess if you're talking about your canon, for the most part, you know, maybe Zero Talents uh, for Silence would be kind of considered you're on the corner, like an album that was immediately met with indifference and anger from the the jazz guard, whoever, Robert or whoever the critic of the moment is. But for you, though, I mean, now that decades have passed, like, what is your relationship? What was your feeling with the record when you turned it in? And... Th- you know three decades after the fact what is your your feelings on that because there was also speculation that you pulled the neil young neil young also famously wanted to get off geffen and i'm you know i'm i'm, I'm giving <laughs> I you i i, I the and rumors. that was
9: that kind of i have to say i rarely get pissed off and stuff but that pissed me
5: off because it was like no, oh they thought you you so you I, heard the I rumors mean, of you know, that I, being I, a throwaway I, yeah, some, record. I mean there
9: was some guy who wrote uh, something to that effect in some
5: magazine. And that well, was that only because Neil Young because did it with trans and people thought, you know, like what Neil Young's doing a craftwork record. Now he's trying to get off the label, like that sort of thing. Or yeah. so, well, yeah. What were your th- feelings on its reception and time since then?
9: You know, my feelings about that. Well, and also I have to preface it and I don't know about you, but most, it seems like many, if not most musicians, never ever listen to their own records ever again after they're finally mastered after they've heard it for six months straight (laughs) and have (laughs) obsessed about whether it should be 0.2 db at 9k you know all that (laughs) stuff that we all do you know
5: you don't listen to see if it's aged well like i don't like listening to my records personally but when i'm making a new record i will go back to the other roots records to see if this is aged well or not so
9: yeah, maybe I should try that sometime. Really? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, every now and then, though, I do. I have to say, I hear something, and I don't recognize that it's me. And usually <laughs> I go, well, that sounds pretty good. Who's that?
5: Uh, and, then, uh, and that's a pleasant
9: uh, surprise. Uh, it's rare that I ha- hear something and I go, what is that? I, oh, my God, that's me. So, you know, generally speaking, I would say, you know my sense is that, like I was saying before it 's this one long story with these different chapters that represented different periods, but it 's this continuous thing but specific to to what you 're talking about here i mean that that was a period for me you know i as i 've referenced a couple of times, I grew up in a kind of open spaces kind of environment, mm-hmm. you know um, it, there were lots of trees and then a field and then another tree. So so kind of like the idea of spaciousness was something that was built into my thing. And it, I, I carry it with me now. I mean, I've got this 17 years of quiet that I can always go to. Um, but my life after the time I left Missouri was like, man, intense, dense, packed and it's been packed ever since. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I'm on the road like more than most people live in New York City, you know, international family, it's a it's an intense life. And um the natural thing for me, and it maybe hit a pinnacle around that time, was the record secret story, which was mm-hmm. done just just at the same time, basically, as zero tolerance. And the idea that I had at that moment in time was I had lots of these sort of images of things that had open canvas, and I wanted to fill up the entire canvas. And Secret Story does that, and Zero Tolerance for Silence does that in a different way. And that's kind of my sense of it. There was a really great description given to me by a man around the time of those two records and said, you know, secret stories like a painting, and there's a river in the painting, and it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the river. And that's kind of the way I see it, too. I, I didn't know it, but yeah, she was right.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: I
5: just thought about something, you know. At the time, in the in the first part of your career, you were on uh, ECM Records. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is a highly trusted label. However, you made the move to Geffen, and it's almost like I almost feel like we're in the same boat because if you're a non-rock act, often questions I got was like, why even risk it going to a label really not built to promote you or whatnot. So what was, what was the unusual choice of going to Geffen
7: records?
9: Well, you know, honestly, you're right. I started on ECM. I did 11 records at ECM, which uh, I, travels.
7: Me, I really loved. I want to say yeah, uh, travels. I, mean, I, I that's, love this, that album, man. Me, Beautiful that's record.
9: One that I still, you know, if, if, People want one record of that era, I say, get travels, because that's got a lot of information on it. But, um, you know, after my 11 records with ECM, they were all done in the classic form. You get two days to record, a day to mix, buy. However it came out, wow. that's your record. And that's it. And I mean, you know, that's a viable way to make music. I mean, you know, I I would still make a record like that now for a certain kind of thing. You're doing a documentary. You're doing a documentary record. You're getting a bunch of guys. You've got some tunes. You're going to play them a couple times. You're going to pick the best take, maybe do an edit. Um, We didn't do fixes back then, maybe one or two, barely. Um, But, you know, and that's it. And, you know, I did my best under those, you know, auspices. And I'm, to this day, grateful to have had the chance to be on that label during an incredibly fertile period for that label. I mean, it was still kind of emerging. I mean, I was within the first hundred ECM records a couple of times, I think.
6: Can Um, I I interject? And and I I don't want to interrupt the answer to the why go to Geffen question, but uh, since we're right here at ECM and um, I just wanted for our, our listeners to hear the the name Manfred Iker. So can you tell us a little bit about him? He's the owner and producer of, of the label and thousands would, of records. Yeah,
9: yeah. He's, he's the guy that to this day, I mean, he's, you know, I was in that first hundred records. I think they're up close to 3,000 now. And mm. honestly, everybody should hear about 2,600 of them because yep. the guy really knows how to make records. Yeah, And um, he and I, honestly, we never got along. Um, I was a snotty little kid and I thought I knew all kinds of stuff that I probably didn't know. Um, but, you know, my snottiness ended up also being kind of a supercharged engine to do a lot of stuff that probably was impossible to do that somehow I did, you know. And, and, um, I'm just, here I am admitting on air that I was super snotty, man. That's what like <laughs> oh, <was laughs> yeah. Exclusive. Thank you very much. And <laughs> We're good going to go back to that. You gentlemen. Yeah, that uh-huh. <laughs> Exclusive. Just to finish up the Geffen thing, because yeah. it, is, it is kind of an interesting thing. So at the time, you know, this was 1984. I had, you know, had, you know, a kind of success that honestly, I, nobody was more surprised than me that we were not selling 800 900 records travels and of you know you know the records of that era including new Chautauqua, you know which was a solo guitar record they were selling hundreds of thousands of records they were on the pop charts and it wasn't like i was trying to do that the tunes were still 15 minutes long it's just we just kind of were touring constantly and There were radio stations around that time that would actually play 12-minute tracks mixed in with Fleetwood Mac or whatever else was happening. I mean, there was a bunch of stuff in the culture that that allowed that to happen. And um, so I had a certain, I guess, viability within the recording industry world that caused the moment that me leaving ECM uh, a lot of interest amongst people. you know, I'm very fortunate that from the very beginning I've been with one agency, Ted Curland in Boston. Um, we've been together, I don't know, 40 whatever years now Wait. and Ted yeah, Ted got the the message and and sort of did a thing where he got a bunch of companies interested. I was able to start my own company which since then we've licensed to all the record companies. I I own everything from post ECM on thanks to Ted
5: oh wow and
9: and, um among the suitors of that period David Geffen had just started his own company and he only had a few artists John Lennon and you know Cher and Jennifer Holiday yeah I mean there were just a a few and he hired A guy, Donna Summer, he had hired um, Gary Gersh, who's a, a guy who I had known from the work with, that I had done just prior to that with David Bowie at EMI. He signed Gary Nirvana, over, by the way. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, exactly. And uh, Gary came to Geffen as one of the guys. Gary um, w- sort of made a case like, you know, this guy, me, It's we, nobody knows what it is. He's got a following and... You know, we should sign him. And David, I said, can I meet with David Geffen? <laughs> wow. And they arranged it like, sure. So I had lunch with David Geffen and he was like, well, it sounds like you've got a thing going on. We'd like to have you on the label. And they never, th- I think I ever heard the J word there. You know, they were just like, this is a band, kind of like Guns N' Roses. We signed this other band, Nirvana. This is a band kind of like that band. You know, they you know, they go out and they play gigs and they were not thinking of it as anything other than music. And I mean, you know, wow, that's far out, huh? And, you know, I ended up I think I've got two or three gold records from them yeah, from that period.
5: Three. I, I was gonna ask, did you ever think of collaborating with um Kim and Thurston of Sonic Youth? I know that I didn't, um, Thurston I didn't. was a big fan of yours.
9: No, and and uh, you know, I mean, it's funny because, like you say, at the record company, you know, you go to the record company and you see everybody else is on the label, and I used to see that guy from Guns N' Roses like would be leaving as I would come in, or <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, and it was cool because it's like we all had the same art director, and I remember when they were doing uh, the Nirvana cover. The famous one, because the guy was working on one of my covers at the same time, or that
5: artist. same person. I
9: mean, you know, it was it was all kind of in house there, including Sonic Youth too. Yeah, because they were they were in there too. Yeah,
5: I was going to say, uh, yeah, as of today, uh, the baby from yeah, that Nirvana doing.
1: cover. Oh yeah, <laughs> the <is> suing right. <laughs> the baby is suing for child pornography charges. Yeah, it's I'm like, in, come on, it's dog. It's Saturday. Just
5: just say you need ten bucks, we're man. Do- we're doomed. Come
1: on, come on. Uh,
5: Wait. Okay. I I do want to ask. In does anyone from my world, from the world of hip hop, ever make a big deal of uh, letters from home? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Without me letting it
7: out the bag. Um.
9: You mean
5: like musically? (laughs) Yeah. See, this is the thing. I I I don't I don't want to open up a Pandora's box. Because you own your masters. Which box? Yes, exactly. (laughs) But but what I'm saying (laughs) is that, again, the hip-hop world has a a way different relationship with you than Uh, the other words. And, and, you know, I mean, that's the thing about hip-hop, because they'll look at something that the average world will ignore, and then they'll be like, no, but that's that's the thing over there. So I'm just curious, like, do any does anyone from the world of hip hop just ever come to you and say, like, yo, let her from home? Specifically,
9: no? Next um, question. Anyway. <laughs> you know, I gotta tell you, man, I'm like, you know, I don't hang much, you know. I kind of I've gotten oh. away somehow with doing my own thing mostly. And I, you know, even kind of within the, the, the circle of musicians. That I would probably normally be around. Right. You know, in the, you know, going to smalls or something. And I do go hear a lot of people. And I go and I kind of stand in the back and listen to a couple of tunes and, you know, but all kinds of music. But you know, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm not really like in the scene. I mean, I will say, because I did visit the the new power station the other day. Now right. Berkeley zoning it. And man, you know, that was really cool back in those days where, yeah, I would see, uh, you know, um, you know, everybody, you know, like, um, you know, everybody was there all the time. You'd run into like, you know, Eric Clapton or you'd run into Anita Baker or you'd run in. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody was there recording all the time every, and you'd see everybody. And it was in a way it was kind of a, a social way that you would have an encounter with somebody sort of outside of your you know normal hang. But, you know, I don't go to clubs or do anything like where I would be hanging out.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state.
7: The record, um, the, the Slip Away record um, that was sampled, it was a song, and it's called Summer Days by his DJ, uh, Nick Holder. And so, th- actually, crazy thing, I did a panel with him. <laughs> this is probably, I mean, God, this is 17 years ago. And um, we were just on a panel together, and I had never heard any of his music. And then afterwards, I heard Summer Days, and I was like, man, this is great. I want to say maybe like a year after that, I'm chilling with another one of my homies, a big jazz head. And he was like, yo, that's so-and-so. I was like, what? And then he put me on to to your break. I was like, "Oh, that's that was Pat' thing." Like I had no clue, but yeah. that was a bridge to you know to, to the rest of that album. Uh, to I, the uh, I mean,
9: my fundamental kind of feeling about sampling and the way that not just my thing, but kind of records in general are used in the, in that realm is very positive. I mean, to mm-hmm. me, it's really related to collage art, and um, you know of course, graffiti and all of that stuff, which right. to me is like, you know, that's the language of, of this moment. And um, so to me, that's, it's like, I, I have absolutely no problem with it. And I love hearing people do stuff, create
5: creatively. But to me, that was just like, man, that's, you're just that, taking our tune and putting a <laughs> drum on. <that's> not drum. <laughs> the thing is, is that, you know, people don't understand like hip hop is at its core. Hip hop is African music right. and African music is repetitive yeah, it's it's always a repetition of, you know, and I know that you come from a world where you got to go linear and go in a straight line, like to somewhere else, somewhere else. So I initially asked that question, if you were aware of how much that particular album, Let Us From Home, had sort of been a kind of a creative outlet for like a lot of the classic hip hop stuff that I grew up on, only because I know that you were also like very open and a key developer in like new technology, like with the Synclavier and with sampling and, and with, you know, especially when you started your Falcon and St- Snowman scoring stuff, how you were basically kind of using primitive technology that we're using now. Like, you know, now half this stuff is on our laptop. Were you actively advising the Synclavier people on how to build the machine, or were you just the first recipient to get it and and use it and in...
9: well, we're going back actually seventy nine
5: for that mm-hmm. oh, that's how early okay this is cool.
9: way before midi um and yeah, I was out there on the bleeding edge of that and um I mean you know there's all kinds of like sort of shocking you know technological aspects to you know I mean I remember at one point spending. Five thousand dollars to get a five megabyte hard drive. Five <laughs> meg, not gig. And and we
5: it was so wow. deli- it was so. Five delicate. megabyte, not even a gig. No, a thousand dollars a megabyte.
1: There yeah. you go. that's it thrifty. thousand dollars. That's a hi hat and a snare, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly.
9: And not only that, it was so fragile it had to have its own bunk on the bus. Oh wow. Man. And I mean, you and know, you would use it live. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a funny thing because now, um, of course, everybody does all kinds of stuff now. So when the Synclavier came out, their ad was, "This is the last synthesizer you'll ever need to buy," <laughs> and and uh, and it had several new things that just had not existed before. One was FM synthesis, which this is several years before. The dreaded DX7 came along, um, <laughs> and uh, then they they were the they were the
5: you didn't like the patches.
9: <laughs> well, you know they probably weren't that bad. I just on no, just be honest. In '85, were you track. looking
5: at like, "Yo, DX7, man, this is the future," uh, or do you oh, automatically man. knew it was cheesy? No, I knew, man. You and, knew those <laughs> patches were <laughs> right cheesy. I mean,
9: we can also talk about synths for hours because I have very strong opinions. Let's go. Mostly Let's go. positive dude This is what the show's for. This is what we do. nerd out on. But, you know, um, man, I mean, you know, the thing about acoustic instruments, you can't make them hurt you, (laughs) you -hmm. know, and electric instruments, including guitar, their default is pain. You know, it's like you really have to have a concept and a, a vision of sound before you plug it in with those instruments, because their default is just horrible. (laughs) <laughs> and also, you know, speakers. We all we all think about, spe- and we just we don't even think about speakers anymore. Of course, it's going to come out of a speaker. I mean, man, speakers suck. You know, compared to a drum or a guitar. I mean, right. speaker. I don't care if it's the best speaker in the world. They're horrible. So it's like you have to have an acoustic framework to build electric music from, in my opinion. And I mean, my first act was to plug it in. You know, I've been dealing with knobs and wires and electricity from day one. That's part of the instrument. So all of this stuff, computers and everything else, for me, that's part of the axe. A big thing for me has always been to get a good sound and to, you know, make it do at least something that has a reflection in terms of orchestration to this incredible tradition of you know, diatonic chromatic music that's evolved over the last few hundred years. And, um, you know, kind of also included in that, I'm, I would say, yeah, there can be abstraction, there can be conflict, there can be dissonance, there can be all kinds of other stuff. But to me, there, it, it requires a certain kind of wisdom to make those things really happen. Yeah. So back to the Synclavier, one of mm-hmm. the things that it had was a sequencer that had never existed commercially before. So I could get this thing to play parts that we could play with. And I mean, man, that was like top secret for 20 years. It's like, you know, we would hide the single beer and nobody really knew what we were doing or how it was working and Mm -hmm. what was going on. And we kind of successfully managed to do that. But I never had a loop. It was always something transparent. It was, I was like writing for cellos, writing for French horns. And there was always this thing in there, and we almost never had a click either. It was always Wait, some kind of music Yeah, it was always something musical that you could, you could work yourself into so that you could get the feel in between the thing. Because to me, that's where the music is too, is the feel of it. But to me, it's like, if there's going to be a click, I want it to rush. You know, because mm. all the musicians I love rush. So if there's gonna <laughs> be a clip, man, I spend hours with the drummer, like working on making it rush. And
7: you rushing loved we would it. rush playing a little you know, ahead because, of the clip. I,
9: yeah. I dig mm. rushing, and some of that probably comes from four and more being my first record, because they right. rush like crazy on that right. But um, you know, to me, those things, it's like tech to me should be in the service of the music. I never relinquish. Anything to the tech. I'm always like, come on, man, you know, and that goes for the manufacturers too. It's like I'm always saying, couldn't, you know, what if, you know, that kind of stuff. But tempo dynamics, and I mean, you know, the fact that we're still living with MIDI now is just a nightmare, man. I mean, that that sucked in 1985, you know. And still a nightmare for you. It's like I know you know James, because I know he works with you, but I mean he brings in these like quirks from 1985. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> I cool. suffered through that shit back then, man. But you know, <laughs> he's, he, he knows what he's doing so he can do whatever he wants. But, um, yeah, I mean, stuff kind of was, you know, it didn't work that well back then. You know, I mean, yeah. It, you know, how, we had, how
5: would you yeah. be because you were so early to adapt to that sort of technology in your live show. Um, how would you adjust if there were any faux pas or or you know you yeah, lose okay we button. lost half the you know half the programming for blah 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 blah
9: Leon may, may not know that a few years ago um, i did an entire project with me and uh, a whole bunch of robots mm. are you hip to the orchestrion
5: uh, speaker so,
9: You know, I kind of ragged on speakers a little while ago, but actually that kind of got cracked back in the early 1920s. Player pianos, output device, not a speaker. The composer's in the room, but he's not in the room. You're hearing an acoustic sound. I mean, man, there it is. And um, of course, not long after that, somebody came along with wire recordings Then 78s. It's like, you know, that put the player piano guys out of business right so to to their, for their last gasp they were like okay we need to like let's attach some drum, a snare drum and some cymbals and a xylophone to the player piano and and then people dig that and so they did that and you still hear them in pizza parlors every now and then you know where it's mm-hmm. like yep and those were the first orchestrions and the thing about those instruments, you can't listen to them for more than about thirty seconds before you want to kill yourself, because they have no <laughs> dynamics. It's, it's just like if somebody talks like this all the time, you cannot listen to them because. <laughs> and music that doesn't have dynamics, nobody can listen to that. And that's that was the real downfall of that tech. So, flat, you know, fast forward seventy years. Yamaha comes along with the disclaver, which we all know as, you know, playing Girl from Ipanema, how to tune in hotel right. lobbies.
5: <laughs>
9: <laughs> Only you would say that. Well, mm-hmm. Amazing technology. And that's solenoids, which do allow dynamics. And I've followed this stuff all along. It's something I've been interested in. You know, basically MIDI to uh, control voltage that can hit something or do something mm-hmm. and so i put together a bunch of instruments from five really great inventors none of them really knew each other and went out and did a whole tour me and a bunch of robots proving once and for all just how weird i actually am it was you know <laughs> it was not quite settled science before that but you know, right. that did it but you want to talk about you know the potential for train wrecks I oh mean, no yeah.
5: wait were you the uh, only human on stage I was the only human on stage. Oh, wow. go with the story. Go you ahead. You can check
9: it out. I, you know, the thing is, I made a record which, you know, was not really understood because you couldn't see it. But at the very end of the tour, because I did a hundred and some concerts around the world with this. At the end of the tour, we filmed it. And and you can find it online, mm-hmm. uh, the Orchestrion Project. And you can see what was going on and honestly it's 10 years now or more 12 years since I did it I can't believe nobody else is doing it I was like man you know this is gonna this is gonna be a thing but my thing because because there is one of these inventors that I've continued to work with and the issue is dynamics because when you hit your snare man the you know the amount of of um You know, what goes into that in terms of, like, pounds per square inch Mm -hmm. is, like, way more than any solenoid that existed then, for sure. Mm -hmm. So now that this one guy who's a Belgian guy has come up with a really powerful solenoid that, if you put your hand down there, it would break your hand. Until we can present it to you or Jay-Z or somebody in an acoustic space doing the thing that it's supposed to do, we don't have anything. But I don't know if you've ever been to Carnival in Brazil where it's like acoustic, but loud, louder than Metallica. Because there are
5: a billion people playing also the same thing. Exactly. exactly.
9: But also just the the amount of air that gets moved acoustically, you know, and and you're right, it's coming from not single instruments, but like a a multiple of instruments. But imagine what that could be if you, like, instead of, you know, using a drum machine and instead of it being like, you know, something coming through your crappy little speakers, you're like in a warehouse with like 17 bass drums getting hit harder than you can even imagine to make a sound. And have it happen, this is the other issue with all this stuff. Is latency because of the amount of time from mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. you hit a pad or whatever till the time it takes it to turn into, you know, unfortunately MIDI 1.0 mm-hmm. to then the, the C, you know, control voltage aspect of it to the mechanism can be, you know, four or five milliseconds, which in terms of groove, we know is, yeah, is yeah. sub millisecond. Right. And um, so that issue also, I think, you know, with 5G kind of stuff. And um, you know the, the, we're we're on the cusp of a whole bunch of possibilities for musicians with this next step in tech that's going to be really great.
5: Wow. Okay. So you're are you saying that you are currently trying to improve on a robot's ability to actually have human feel and can pre-program dynamics. So, like snare one might be seventy-seven, but snare two might be forty-five, and and can do grace notes and can fluctuate in speed and slow down. <laughs>
9: Man. Yeah. But but okay, so wow. but, but, but wait, let me let me respond to that because you know, I mean, when the Synclavier came out, you know, string players, this is going to put us out of business. You know, right. it's like you know a DX seven. You can't tell the difference between this and a Fender <clears> Rhodes. <throat> It's yes, like, uh, yeah you can are you kidding you know <laughs> no no you know to me i'm about both and i'm not about either or and the whole thing about you know the like when i did the orchestrion project of course people are like you're trying to put music you know you know all that stuff it's like mm-hmm. no no it, this is not a better way to do anything this is a different way to do something and i'm all about like you know what else can we do? I mean, you know, to me, like, again, back going back to hip hop, jazz, classical folk, you know, what I'm into is creativity and, mm-hmm. you know, that's what I like is, you know, like, man, I think about the Beatles. It's like, God, you know, man, some, you know, some artists are like happy if they, if each record's got a sound, I mean, those guys, every track had a
6: <laughs> completely
9: right. different sound. I mean, you know, it's like, God, I wish, you know, I mean, you know, the community that I kind of hang in, like the we're so creative. I mean, uh-huh. man, how many more trumpet, tenor, piano, bass, drum records, you know, are there going to be? Can there know? be? And I dig, I dig two and four, but I mean, come on, let's, you know, what, it, I mean, if you think of all the spectrum of all possible music that there could be made by humans. And then you think about this tiny sliver that most music now inhabits. It's like, why,
5: why is well, that? Let me- let me ask: Is there a challenge that ha- that you have yet to meet? And I guess the B side of that question would be: Have you? How do you? How do you get? How do you navigate in a situation uh, when you're doing improvisation? In which I guess improvisation is only good as your collaborators, and your collaborators is really is only strong as who your weakest. Contributor. Well, I don't want to say weakest, like, but how do you, okay. Let me just ask that question. One is, is, is there a challenge that you have dreamt about that you've yet to achieve and how do you navigate uh, a situation in which you might be improvising with less skillful, musicians i don't know if you know if you sit in a, a local bar one night with a musician i don't mean like the guys that you actively tour with but
9: i mean man you know for me you know it's the it's again it's one of those cliches the the onion thing of every new step that you take mm-hmm. as a musician you reveal a thousand other things it's like god you know i really need to work on that and that and that. So, it's really infinite for me. I mean, in terms of God, what do I need to get better at everything? You know, I mean, it's just, I mean, one thing I will say though. So, when I started making records, I'd only been a musician for four or five years. Mm. And I mean, now it's 50 some years. And, you know, I'm, God, I'm like so much better now than I used to be. It's which makes it so much more fun. I understand so much more. And, you know, remember when we first started talking, that was kind of, the goal for me. And it's still the goal for me. I just want to understand, like, what is that? And you, and when I hear some music that I really love, I want to know, like, okay, how does that work? And once I start doing that, usually I get to the point where I, I can kind of play in that realm. And, um, you know, And that that opens up another thousand doors, you know, but I feel like I I always am coming to music as a fan first, you know, I'm like, I love music, you know, the same way I love that Miles record. You know, I hear stuff all the time and I go, I love that. What is that? And I want to know what it is. And also, why do I love that so much? What is it about that 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 really makes me dig it that much. Okay. I'm going to give you a weird off the wall example. So the big okay. hit right now, that young girl, Olivia.
5: Rodrigo. Yeah, oh, yeah. And her tune,
9: right. Her tune. Mm-hmm. And I mean, cause I have three kids, so I hear the hits all the time and, you mm-hmm. know, I dig hearing the hits, but you know, that structurally, that tune does a thing. So it's like, you know, to oh do God,
5: don't really, give her that much more power at nonplay. No, no. <laughs> you
9: know, again, I don't know anything about the culture. I don't know anything about her. No, 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 no. She's
5: killing. This is her summer, you know.
9: Doing that thing. And also, it's something that happens a lot in right at the moment, the thing where it's kind of fast, but it's also half time, but it's also um, double time, you know, which is a cool thing. I, I mean, there's like some, you know, swing versions of that too, you know. I mean, right. that's a great thing. And um, there you you have it, it. Pat
5: Metheny, uh, Olivia Rodrigo.
7: I mean, I can find some others,
9: but that just popped into my mind. But, you know, in terms of orchestration, dynamics, build, execution and then particularly communication i mean it does the thing right and you know maybe that's lost in a lot of this discussion it's like all the stuff you know about rhythm and harmony melody is kind of a mystery zone but rhythm and harmony man you can talk about that stuff you can go to college for four years on rhythm right. and harmony easy
0: all right y'all I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. The following
4: is a high five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome
0: to Bird. Yippee. would you
4: like a
2: hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woo-hoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing
3: High Five Casino on my phone! Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games, yeah. So
2: yes or no on the apple pie? woo I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around.
4: Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social
3: casino. No purchase necessary. Void are prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino.
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
7: Pat, you were talking about your kids earlier. How old are your kids, man?
9: They're twenty.
7: 2, 20, and 12. Ah, okay. That's Olivia Rodrigo. Got it. <laughs> That's
0: I was going to say, what's their music matriculation like? Like how, how do you, what's your relationship with them musically?
9: Seems like it goes like either full in or like don't bug us with the music thing, dad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're,
9: kinda, they're more in the second category, although all three of them could be musicians. They're all kind of mind-blowingly good ears and so forth Mm -hmm. taste wise man they're all over the place you know my middle kid Jeff who's like super hip he's 6'4 he's mostly into basketball Mm -hmm. but he started playing acoustic bass and I mean he's been around Christian and Charlie Hayden and all these cats since he was born and I mean he's just got a natural easy walk and feel Mm -hmm. but the notes are kind of like you know kind of you know, not I don't want to say random, but but you know the feel wins. Actually, it's like you know no. with that feel, it's like just fill in some blanks. But he's just kind of like, yeah, I think I'm going to go practice
5: free throws instead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's never a thing where you force your kids to like pick up the mantle and you're going to join the family business. And okay, yeah, yeah.
9: yeah no, I, I I wouldn't be like that. You know, okay. I don't see. And that. also, you know what, man, being like I said earlier. I mean, I'm so happy to be a musician. You know, it's like we actually get to deal in a currency that's true. You know, it's right. like B flat is always B flat, no matter what else <laughs> is going on. It's either, it either. And in every language, it's
7: the same. It feels well, you never know. It feel good,
9: I mean, you know.
5: I we mean, live in a actually, time where facts are fact, debatable. So, you know, that part. <laughs> but B flat yeah, so, is always B flat. <laughs> Steve, before I close, do you, did you have a question?
6: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You were also on other great labels, Warner Brothers, none such. uh, But uh, the two albums you put out this year in 2021 are on Modern Recordings. Is that your label? And can you tell us a little bit about those two records?
9: Yeah. So my label was formed in 1984, which is Matheny Group Productions. And from that time until now, uh, at various points along the way, I have made licensing deals with several different companies which were then sold to other companies in on a couple occasions, Mm -hmm. which were then distributed by other companies. But throughout it all, I've always had my own thing. I do what I want to do. And everybody um, that I have worked with along the way has been great. My thing has been my own thing since I left ECM. And it's just been a matter of getting different distribution. These guys, uh, you know, it's part of BMG, this modern recordings thing, you know, for the first time in a really long time, because actually when I went to Geffen, Geffen was distributed by Warners. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's really complicated. Then Warners and Geffen got into a fight because of me. I was like this speck of dust on a pond (laughs) at the bottom of, that somehow when they broke up their distribution thing, You know, and Warners had invested a lot in me and my band distributing with Geffen. So anyway, I wound up on Warners. Mm -hmm. Then Warners had a thing. It was kind of a little different than at Geffen where they really left me completely alone. Warners, I kind of did have to, you know, and and was around a really good guy there, Matt Pearson, Mm -hmm. uh, who was very, a a really great enthusiastic supporter of my thing. Mm And then at a certain point, they shut that down. And then Nonesuch took over what was left of that. And actually, the guy that ran Nunsuch at that time was a guy that I had worked. He started at ECM when I did, Bob Hurwitz. So oh, wow. it's been all these guys. I've known all these guys along the way. And it's been great with all of them. Finally, you know, I had this record deal that had been put in place, I think, in 1992 for I mean, it's insane. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of got to the end after all these years. And I did a lot of records off the lab, off the contract and stuff in between and, you know, whatever. It's all just whatever that stuff was. But finally, for the first time, I was kind of like, okay, I can, um, I was now 12, was going to school. And a f- new kid came into the class from Germany. And he was this big monster fan. And he came to my house and sat down with the guitar and started playing all the tunes. And I was like, wow.
5: Just showed up like well, cold. He, he was
9: invited over. Oh. No, yeah. The <laughs> and then he said, and we're, you know, I'm I'm part of BMG and we're starting this new thing. We would you would you possibly be interested? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, why not? So now they're distributing it. And no I mean, word. it's distributed, I think, by Warners again. I don't know. You know, for me, it's, especially at this point, the whole idea of records and mm-hmm. all that, it's a little hard to even know what's going on. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's a different world in a lot of ways. But right. on the other hand, I'm kind of like, you know, a guy that I do believe in the sort of structure of what... An, album is i think there's something to be said kind of like a novel is different than a tweet you know <laughs> man
7: so say novels that. Are cool.
9: novel, i mean the the novel form is a really great form even short stories you know a collection of short stories is a really nice form and you know i i kind of relate to that in ways that doing one tune at a time you know maybe so at some point i don't have anything against it but i'm still like you know i've got so many projects in mind many of which i've already even done that are kind of album type records so you
5: know. wait do you have another question steve
6: yeah can we interview you uh interview you forever please uh, <laughs> <laughs> i was
1: yeah, about to say mean, can, for, just like this is, an interview can see from that my that went
9: answers on. you can see from my answers that could actually be possible. <laughs> so I can no, go, go on this, and on and on. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody, this, everybody in the house is like, it's a this, lot of knowledge. This show
5: actually lives up to the idea of what I would like to think every episode <laughs> of Questlove Supreme is. I mean, <laughs> but are you, are but I, love, I love, I love the education like, that we're getting and the knowledge. Like this is, this is very important. Uh, All right. Well, I got one last question. Well, I, I, I got a
9: bunch of questions for you too. Cause I, I want to, get those in so go ahead yes hey (laughs) ask away
5: wait no i was about to wrap up
9: this question your last one and then i'll start asking you
5: (laughs) okay um I, i i heard that uh in an interview once on wbgo where um you said that you uh i'm sorry it's uh jersey new york wbgo uh famous jazz station of new york um that you keep a diary or journal of all the shows that you do. How long have you been keeping a journal of these shows and how in depth are they? And do you ever plan on releasing this as a memoir uh, to your, your illustrious career?
9: Um, Well, the first thing I would say to that is something I've been saying on occasion, which is, you know, the line between like full blown mental illness and like um, (laughs) compulsive productivity is a very fine one that I do my Mm -hmm. best to stay on the right side of. And, um, you know, my reasons for that, it's been I've been doing it since the the 1981 is that I was doing a lot of gigs. And you know, back in those days, it was quite common when you would do a tour, you would play the same city two or three times on the tour. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I want to keep track of what we played so that when we come back the next time we play a different set, or at least oh, put okay. it in a different order. So that started it. It was kind of a pragmatic thing. Um and then I started to realize, like, OK, and also every time we would go to that hall, there was like a really nasty buzz. So it's like, you know, I started to keep track of that stuff, too. And every time we would go work with that promoter, he, he, you know, would would not do this or ed had a crappy sound system or whatever it was take notes back in those days i was the tour manager you know i was everything you know okay and you know having that reference thing then i could at least call ahead to the the right kind of piano whatever you know so um you know with stuff like that but then it then i realized too that i was taking um kind of i was starting to become more aware of the kinds of things that I would do again and again that I didn't really dig that much. And, you know, and this was totally self directed. Mm-hmm. And there is a thing that we all have as musicians, especially if you play a long set, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, the fourth tune, you completely destroy the bridge. It's like you didn't even come mm-hmm. close. And then, you know, two hours later, the set um, is over and everybody claps standing ovation or whatever. And you kind of go, well, yeah, I guess it was cool. I mean, everybody seemed to dig it, you know, then the next night you're at the fourth tune again and here comes that bridge. And it's like, you didn't shed it. You didn't, uh, you mess it up again, you know? Uh So it was stuff like that. It was like, you know, if I keep track of these things by replaying the whole gig in my mind, because I can only do it for about an hour or two after the gig. After that, it's like, first of all, I'm wasted because we do, you know, six cities a week and, mm-hmm. you know, riding the bus every night. And so it's like by the next day, it's like just a blur anyway. So.
0: All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, my whole house? uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
4: The following is a high five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome
0: to A hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah,
2: I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone! Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games! Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! I won again! I'll take that as a yes, drive around!
4: Have you had your high five moment today? Only at high highfivecasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino, no purchase necessary, void, we're
3: prohibited, play responsibly, conditioned, supply, see website for details. High Five Casino!
1: Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? So if if you have questions, I will I answer
5: them for you. I got questions.
7: I mean, <laughs> This is a first. I, I'm so ready for this. I'm okay, not ready well, for this. I mean, I'm like,
5: yo, man, uh, I hear my mama call me. Uh, that's yeah. it. Ask um, Questlove.
9: This, this won't surprise you, though. My yeah. questions are, to start with, about the movie, which yes. is unbelievable, man.
7: Thank you. I mean, Flowers.
9: Unbelievable. <laughs> it's incredible what you did, man.
7: Oh, thank and, you. I, mean, I appreciate that.
9: You know, but it's more than it's more than what it is. It's something else that's really important. And you did it so good, man. I mean, it's thank like, you. you know, everybody has to see that.
5: And it's, it's um
6: technically not a question, but yeah, uh, not yeah. a question about <laughs> but
5: <because> I, <will laughs> I will take that compliment. <laughs> How did you get it, How did is you it get any get more it? sunny Chirac footage? Well, and I
9: have I do have a comment on that. But um how did you get it to sound that good?
5: Yo, that is the million dollar question. I, I mean, lie to you not. Um, one of my favorite engineers in the world is Jimmy Douglas. Um, yes. A gentleman yeah. who's, you know, he started off with Barry White uh, and Slave and it's... eventually went to Timberland and Missy Elliott. Like he, he, 40 years of excellence. Um, he also did the Uretha Franklin. Um, amazing grace movie as well. I lie to you not um Jimmy hit us and was sort of like, I think this rough mix sounds good as is, and literally, I'll say that we did maybe zero point two percent eQing like what you're hearing is the act is just a rough reference mix, which to me, I don't know how. To explain that only 15 microphones. And you can look. One, you know, I've watched the movie in various ways. There was one time where I just watched the movies to see what the outputs were. And, you know, and Stevie Wonder said alone, there's there's three mics on his drums. So that's already 12 mics left over. Three mics for his drums, three mics for his other drummer, and then his keyboard gets a mic, his vocal gets a mic. And his rhythm section, his guitar and his basses share their 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 uh, what do you call it? Their amps are sort of facing each other, so they're sharing a mic. And the remaining five are going to the brass section. I don't know how it sounded that crispy and perfect, but we basically did very little post on 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 the sound. Like you, what you're hearing is like the rough mix of the reference which t- to me was way more perfect than anything that we could have done to it
9: so Sunny shirak right so yes swallow this connects with with our one of our earlier points mm-hmm. swallow said yeah i would watch sunny like get there early and meticulously warm up with these chromatic scales for like an hour and then he would go out on stage
1: and not play chromatic scales <laughs>
9: <laughs> so, no, he was great, Sonny. Right? And and you you got some good Sonny there too. I mean, the way and also I mean, man, I mean, so all the music aspect of it is great, but to me, what was really great was the story you told with it and, and the way you told the story and just everything about it, man, it's just the greatest.
5: Really, really well. I, I appreciate that. And I I thank you. For receiving it, and they're laughing oh, right now because they know that there? I cringe at compliments. But no, I'm way <laughs> better at right now. Yeah, and that You're said, I am wrapping up this more. episode of Pat Metheny's Quest Love hey, Symphony Sephan- no. because <laughs> they are <laughs> laughing their ass off. No, seriously, I I want to thank you for doing this. I, you know, and again, I I appreciate information and history like no other, especially with music and. You know all that you've done to 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 push uh, to push the art form of music forward, not even just jazz, but just creativity for
7: uh, is not lost on me. And we're big fans of yours, and we appreciate no, you for doing that. For the real, show. man. Yeah, my uh, my good buddy Chris Bernoff is a huge fan of yours. He's a uh, my guitar player. He like has your, like your song. He has like a Pat Metheny songbook in his studio, and he showed it to me. Dude, that shit looked like the Bible. It was huge. I was like, what the fuck. <laughs> and, um, so nah man it was I'm a huge fan and uh, I just want to thank you too for uh, So May It Secretly Begin that's another uh, favorite, favorite one of yours of, of, that I really enjoy so just thank you for all the music man for real hey it
9: was a pleasure hanging with you guys thank you so thank much you. for inviting me really well, I really thank enjoyed you. it yeah
5: alright well on behalf of Sugar Steve and I'm Bill and Fontigolo and, mm-hmm. and Laia my name is Questlove thank you Pat Metheny. Uh this is Questlove Supreme and we'll see you on the next go round alright thank y'all
7: Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right? Peace.
5: What's Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,